0: So before you build a big power plant, uh, you build a miniature of that
1: power plant. Just saying, how the world has changed within five minutes of meeting you. I have been married on LinkedIn, and I am a druggie. If
2: someone is sincere and uh, wants to learn, they will learn. All-rounders, decent communicators, don't talk out of their ass, and uh, very, very sure about deadlines and self-motivated. I have
0: presented to Mr. Bilda, Bilda ji ko maine presentation
2: hai. So coming to this valuation game, Anurag. What is this whole game on valuations? You use the word, I'll define the conventional ones first. What
1: about the non-conventional ones? It's not spray and pray does not happen. Like it's not like AK4070.
0: One of them will get hit somewhere. That just does not happen.
1: Let's have an imaginary 10K. How does your bullshit meter go? How do you read the 10K into this might be bullshit. This might be bullshit. Check, check, check. This is what I'm going to go through.
0: I said, okay, I'm going to start on my own. I would then think, what do I do well? And then one logical answer was, Hi, uh, this is Anurag, a single from Calcutta. So a chartered accountant, I am Amtabad graduate, running Bitafin Partners, uh, which helps uh, startups, SMEs, large corporates, solve the problems related to financial modeling, valuation, due diligence, and CFO services. So we act like a virtual CFO for a host of startups. And the other venture that we have, which I run jointly along with my wife, is CA Job portal which is a decade-old startup. It helps uh, corporates across six countries uh, recruit finance people, chartered accountants, cost accountants, company secretaries, MBA finance. So that's a bit about
2: me.
1: Anurag, why are is so important? I, I don't know how to explain this to people. That why is it so important to keep your books tight? Why is it so important to actually know the direction you're going? in? so many founders we speak to, so many of them don't even have their books right. It's just it's just crazy. So why RCA is so important? Why is it important, the numbers?
0: So, you know, it's uh, like wearing a helmet while you are driving a two-wheeler. A lot of people feel that the reason why that's done is because they want to avoid being fined by the traffic police. But they don't... Uh, understand the fact that uh, that helmet also protects them in case of some untoward incident like an accident. So when it comes to the books, okay, so uh, I have seen startups which have raised even series B and they're still being continuing to maintain cash basis accounting, not accrual basis accounting, which is required. And where this uh, eventually harms them is that, let's say they want to go for public market listing, go for an IPO then they got to get their books clearly audited by the big four or the large firms have the standards in place and that is not there the controls are not in there the frameworks are not there and uh, even like if you don't have a good internal control there's a lot of money which comes into the system suddenly because of funding and then people take a joy ride out of it because there are no sops there are no controls there so accounting compliance uh, And then if you don't have your books correct, you cannot face due diligence for the next fund round. So I have, we also run like due diligences on behalf of family offices. So there are a lot of startups, very aspirational, good products. But when we run into the due diligence, they've forecasted something in the model, there's something else in the books. And then when that dissonance happens, the whole trust and credibility around the entire functioning goes away. Then you don't even know whether that startup founder knows what he's talking about.
1: Me, Vishwit and I, we are idiots. And most of the people who will watch our podcast, let's treat them like five-year-olds. And Let's take away this cloud of all of these difficult words. Like, there are a lot of words we use in finance. Due diligence, series B, and accrual basis, cash basis. Let's have like a crash course in this podcast. Let's have like a crash course to begin with. And let's break down the hue of these words. Let's start with like accrual and cash basis. What does that mean?
0: Okay, so it's very simple. Uh, Let's say I have taken your services, but I've not paid you within March. When I draw my books for March, uh, should I account for the services that I have received from you or not? So the cash basis is that I will record the income as well as expenses only and when I receive them in cash that's okay for small time businesses but imagine that uh, I have received goods worth uh, a million dollars from you I have not paid you and I've sold them off to someone for 1.2 million dollars and I've got cash for that now if I were to maintain the cash system of accounting I record a sales of 1.2 million dollars but there is no corresponding purchase that I have recorded because I have not paid that guy. And therefore, what happens is that I record a profit of $1.2 million in this year. And next year, there is a loss of $1 million. So, accrual method of accounting kind of balances these two. You are matching your expenses and revenues so that they are recorded in the same period. And they give you a fair representation of what exactly you've done. Coming to due diligence, uh, the best example of due diligence is when you go out for marrying someone. What do you do? You go out on linkedin you go out on facebook see who are the common connects call them up and say okay hi there's this guy called akhil uh, who is out uh, in the job in the marriage market and there's a proposal that has come how is he and someone says he's a good guy he earns well he's and then someone will say something like oh akhil uh, is into drugs then what do you do you will say no i'm not going to marry akhil right that is due diligence When you are all hungry about a startup, investing into that startup, all good, good things. And suddenly there are these red flags which will emerge. Oh, the promoters are taking cash out of the system. They're not maintaining books properly. They've had contracts where they have to pay penalties. Uh, There's a legal notice on them. The tax department is after them. Then what happens? You're going to hold back and say, no, I'm not going to invest in this company or I'll have to caveat my investment for all of these risks which have emerged in course of this due diligence so just in that case i can also caveat that there will be a condition precedent to the marriage that akhil will have to get out of drugs else i'm not going to marry him so it's not that due diligence is always a deal breaker you can also set up some conditions precedent to your entering the transaction that's uh, Series B, uh, Series A, so it's basically, there's nothing cast in stone with respect to what are the milestones where Series A, Series B, Series C happen. But typically what happens is once you start a venture and uh, that venture needs external funds, you get some seeds at the beginning, like small seeds which will just help it grow. And then uh, it's like angel investment of f- friends and family. Then it goes into the angel network they are nothing angelic about them, but yes, because the check size is smaller, uh, it's just that they're called angels. They suddenly come and uh, become like God's gift to mankind and giving you funds. And then you move up the value chain once you've grown even better. Then it is like a pre-series. And then this series A, B, C happens. Typically, to reach a unicorn status, most startups have raised up to series F. DEF and then it also you can also make like D1, D2, D3 within that ABCD you can have further breakups of different categories of uh, instruments under which that funding has happened. So I think these were the jargons which I have used.
2: So is this usually depending on size of funding when you go you know pre-seed, seed, series A, series B then you have the D1, D2.
0: I think Series A will be upwards of a a half a million dollars will be a Series A. Half a million to one million dollars of valuation should be Series A. But there is nothing cast in stone. I've seen different people uh, use different lexicons here. So, yeah, but it's like if you've raised Series A, you've arrived in terms of, yeah, this startup has got something.
2: All right. So Anurag, how about we look at you first before we get fully into this whole thing of what you do and what are the different various things that you do What has your journey been so you said I am Ahmedabad what was the journey before that and after that what what was all that like
1: if I can interrupt yeah I love how I was made the bakra out of all of this where you married me on LinkedIn (laughs) just saying and you claimed he does drugs just saying how oh, the world has changed within five minutes of meeting you. I have been married on LinkedIn and I am a druggie. So, so the potential wife is already like, no, 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 I don't want to marry you. Please continue with your definitions. So, uh,
0: yes. I mean, it's a very good, vivid example that I give for people when they want to understand what is due diligence. 100%. You know, marriage.
2: It's a very nice example.
1: Hopefully the name Akhil changes each time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So, uh, very basic uh, background in terms of uh, typical Calcutta, Marwadi, uh, antecedents in Haryana, Rajasthan, from there, settled here uh, since 35 years. Uh, did a schooling from Don Bosco, Lilwa, uh, and then Xavier's, uh, it's a commerce college in Calcutta. And then studied chartered accountancy, worked with organizations like Deloitte, ITC, Tata Steel, Aditya Villa, and all. And then at some point of time in 2014, I realized uh, that uh, a Chartered Accountancy degree makes me just a maverick for numbers and I'm not able to see the larger picture and uh, hence the need for one crash, uh, one year course into the world of management where I would delve slightly into the world of supply chain, marketing, human resource, consumer behavior. So that's how the MBA journey happened post the journey. Uh, we launched this CA job portal on campus, uh, which helps companies recruit chartered accountants. Job seekers get jobs. Was continuing in my job, so I have always been into m strategy, corporate finance roles. And then, uh, 2021 December, I put in my papers in my last job. Uh, I've been like 14 years into the job world. One one vast ho Now another 14 years, I want to put in. Uh, Maybe in my own venture, and then the remaining I'll just do whatever, like podcasting or whatever, which I something which I like. So, these two stints I'll be doing for money or whatever for social security, and the last stint, which will be now at the age of I think 50, 51, then subsequently jo hoga, hoga there's no nothing planned. Yeah, so that's what it is in terms of the journey. I also have a YouTube channel uh, and a uh, LinkedIn handle where a lot of people follow me uh, which gives me the ability to express my ideas to a very large audience. Not that I've become an influencer in any way but I really love uh, expressing myself in form of
1: content and yeah that's uh, about me. Chartered accountancy in India is a whole lot of war by itself considering how low the passing rates are and how difficult it is to actually become one and yet I don't feel it is fully appreciated what chartered accountants do for a firm let's go with you know you have had such a long experience as a chartered accountant and you've had such a long experience in this world top five things that make chartered accountants important or that a regular person must know that a chartered accountant does
0: okay so uh i'll just talk about more about the non-conventional CA also, so the conventional CA, let's say one point could be the conventional CA side, uh, helps you get your compliances, books, etc., in order. That's number one. The second thing is a CA can do everything. There's nothing on the world which a chartered accountant cannot do because once you've had this degree, you get a launch pad. There's a lot of confidence that this degree gives you because of the rigor, sheer rigor of the curriculum. So uh, a chartered accountant can actually add value even to your business operations. So your profit, maximizing capabilities, minimizing leakages, that's number two. A chartered accountant uh, traditionally has been known to be not so great in communication skills, not flamboyant. So then there's a typical CA versus MBA debate that happens. But there are a lot of chartered accountants who are very good at expressing themselves also. Number four, chartered accountants, unlike... uh, Other professionals are very deep-rooted in whatever they are speaking. You will not be able to see a chartered accountant without an MBA talking 20,000 feet. Take them hawa hawa. That generally they don't do. If they're talking something, that's what they'll give you. Like, okay, note number seven to your annual report has this, this, this. And number five, they're very hardworking and tenacious. The sheer, uh, so normally by the sheer economic background from which chartered accountants mostly come, The rigor of the practice, Uh, if you have hired a chartered accountant for your business, you will find that you don't have to remind that person that uh, you need to do this work for me. They're generally very self-driven and motivated for work.
2: All-rounders, decent communicators, don't talk out of their ass and uh, very, very sure about deadlines and (laughs) self-motivated. I think Anurag has just described the perfect employee.
0: Not even the employee. I mean, even uh, for example, now that we pick up these diligence assignments, these valuation assignments, a lot of people tell me that Anurag, I don't have to chase you for that work that you've given me. I mean, yes, I'm paying you, but today in this era of, so in, for example, in Bangalore, if you look at HSR layout, this HSR layout has so many startups that it's going to take you three, four years to explore. There are so many offices there. So there's actually a dearth of good service providers in such kind of environments. So in that case, people who are willing to pay also for good services, don't get good service providers. In that situation, I think uh, this kind of work ethos really helps. Even in entrepreneurship, I mean, since uh, we have been running this cajobhotel.com. So a job site for chartered accountants, by chartered accountants, that was the first of its kind in India. And really got very good response from the market because people could see the difference in terms of the service delivery. Of course, I mean, there is, we are less flamboyant maybe as compared to other professions. Uh, So let's say if you have had a year in some INSEAD or Harvard or somewhere and then you come back, of course, there's a lot more finesse in terms of what you speak and how you present. But yeah, basic nuts and bolts, that rigor of work, I think uh, chartered accountants would do very well at that
1: you use the word i'll define the non uh, i'll define the conventional ones first what about the non conventional ones
0: non conventional chartered accountants today they do not like to do audit accounting taxation which is the usual way the world defines chartered accountants so uh, i think maybe 60 to 70% of the chartered accountants who approach us the freshers they say hame nahi karna accounting in a big four firm or auditing etc or a taxation you want to get into management consulting, investment banking, private equity, VC, equity research, or maybe give us business partnering roles. We don't want to get into tally accounting and SAP accounting. We'll add value to the business through our sheer commercial acumen. So I think that's how the non conventional CA has been emerging. And all the more, I mean, the market has also been reciprocating to it. So initially, for example, management consulting firms were very reluctant to hire chartered accountants. They would think that oh, CAs don't have that finesse, etc. But once they hired chartered accountants, so they started off with rank holder chartered accountants. And they saw that yes, at maybe lesser cost as compared to MPAs, they were
2: doing well. So tell us more about starting betafin partners and how did that come about?
0: So starting betafin partners uh, happened last year. Uh, one and a half years since we've been running this so see over the years uh, so what happens once you go to a b school and you see the larger canvas it becomes very difficult for you to come back and then work in a siloed job uh, working for just one boss and then waiting for the annual increments that ten percent increment because then you feel that uh, there's such uh, a massive opportunity outside this job security this salary dopamine so probably it was more entrepreneurship, uh, the bug of entrepreneurship that bit me and then when I said okay I'm going to start on my own I would then think what do I do well I mean, and then one logical answer was uh, do things that you've done in the past 14-15 so years which you've done well with the world has acknowledged that yeah you have some good command over it and therefore I said okay what are the skills which I know well financial modeling, valuation, due diligence, content side so I made annual reports for companies we also started off with pitch decks for startups now we are not doing it because of a host of issues uh, there. so uh, that's how in Partners started, uh, we got our first clients and one after the other through word of mouth uh, through referral and yes of course content marketing which I do it just uh, is going steady now
2: So Anurag, we read this book called Emit revisited okay and it talks about what you're saying that you know you do a job and you think you're skilled enough in that job to start your own business however there are a lot of things in the business that you when you are a salaried employee do not think about so what are i would say what are the three things or five things that you have noticed in your process of starting Betafin, which you say probably you didn't realize when you were starting out and those were things that you have to deal with
0: oh yes uh- so, what happens is that once uh, from a job world you start off as an individual practitioner, uh, so it becomes that whole ego and the aura that uh, surrounds you that you are associated with this brand and that brand that all gets shattered because no, you're no longer associated with it. So, your self identity uh, so you go out in some marriage function and say, Kya kar rahe ho and you say, i i Tata Steel, mein kar and suddenly the manager start here? So that managing, that sudden loss of identity, I mean in a society today, we identify ourselves by the brands that we work for. That's one. Uh, the number two, I think the marketing side is underrated. People think, for example, I also used to think that since I've got skills, the world is going to just hand me over this work on a platter. Doesn't happen like that marketing networking those are far more critical skills in fact if you get to work there are dime a dozen people who can execute it for you so the criticality of marketing was a major thing so number three again as a continuation of point two you are good at marketing you approach people you have a value proposition but then there is a reluctance to change why should they switch over to you as compared to the incumbent service provider that's a major question that you need to ask we are very happy with our service provider we are not going to change just because you started so that sense of self-entitlement that you have that oh since i have started the world should just stop over and give everything to me that doesn't happen so that's those sales calls don't fructify not because you're not good but because there's someone else also who is equally good or maybe less good but he's made or she's made indoors into that system much earlier than you and now people trust that person number four employee attraction is a major problem i mean attracting employees uh, talent attraction is a major challenge you don't have that so for example when i was in job and if i were to put something on linkedin that i want people to work in my team i would get maybe 200 300 applications and i would then interview them one of them would turn up to the office to get interviewed etc But then once you start on your own, uh, you have no brand. You have to give interview to people you join me. And uh, so people question you, okay, do you have enough work for me? Is it really enticing enough? So those are the, maybe the fourth thing, attracting talent. And then that whole uncertainty around fixed cost uh, building, operating leverage. So once you hire people, there is a daily commitment, a monthly commitment and work is not certain. Especially, so those are mostly like you know uh, one-off assignments with no uh, promise of repetition, unless you get into the traditional audit and accounting practice. So then that's a trade-off, and how do you solve that is one major thing that one needs to figure out.
1: It's very funny, Anurag, because you know I studied finance. I did a master's in finance, and in finance they teach you what does a healthy company look like right what does a healthy balance sheet look like or what does a healthy 10k statement which is like the annual filing for companies what does a healthy 10k look like then you start thinking i know what a healthy 10k looks like why don't i build a company with a healthy 10k and if i can build a company with a healthy 10k it will automatically i can go public and like people will value me very nicely and then when you actually start getting into it you realize how difficult it is to actually build a very healthy 10k right so let's have an activity for everybody. And the the question i lead on with Anurag, what makes you good? How did you convince your clients that I am good and you should switch? Because that's one problem that you attracted. And the second part would be, let's have the activity of you taking up any 10K. Let's have an imaginary 10K. How does your bullshit meter go? How do you read the 10K into this might be bullshit? This might be bullshit. Check, check, check. This is what I'm going to go through. Okay. So,
0: the first thing is like uh, in terms of my pitch deck, uh, so you get your first couple of clients through sheer uh, luck. Okay. So, that's how I, my pitch deck also starts. At, okay. I have already worked for Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. I've already worked for uh, maybe an ITC. So now if you get these two clients, uh, you know that I have something under my belt, uh, which can be of merit. So basically the pitch is that in the past, and this is the honest pitch, which I always tell people that I have done what I have done, like financial modeling, valuation pitch. Check, and I have also been in front of Mr. Kumar Mangalam, and have presented my financial models to him. So imagine the owner of like a $40, 50000000000 billion conglomerate uh, he also says okay Anurag what is your view on this in that meeting restricted to the mining business. So then uh, that has been one big uh, clincher in terms of getting deals. When people hear that they're like okay okay this guy knows at least this. And then the other thing which in the works has worked in the pitch deck is I tell them that I don't know a lot of things for example I don't know taxation well. So if you were to give me direct taxation indirect taxation work I have not worked in that. So. Closing doors to a lot of uh, opportunities gives people the confidence that what you are pitching for actually you are good at that. So that has worked for me. The work experience in the past has been the primary uh, elevator pitch, and of course uh, through execution, also we have proven that in CA job portal we've already worked with this 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 client, and hence uh, please give us a chance. And maybe you know sometimes it's just like okay please give us this template to review whatever work you've done in the past, and then it's a kind of a thing that you have to find five mistakes in that thing. And say, uh, you're not giving me this work, fine, but your present service provider is not looking at these five critical things. Those could be some things, uh, yeah. The second thing is uh, when you talked about a 10K, I think uh, typically what one needs to look at in a 10K is very clear, Uh, how much of your PAT, uh, which is your profit after tax, translates into cash flow from operations if 80 percent or more of your profit after tax does not translate into profit uh, cash from operations which means there is some major issue in this business either you are making sales uh, but those guys are not paying up uh, or there's some goof up around something which is happening so uh, one is cash flow from operations to profit after tax how much audit fee are you paying? Is there some significant increase in audit fee year on year uh, along with all the shady accounting that you're doing are also incentivizing your auditor to remain silent uh, by paying more? Uh, how much is your top management drawing as a percentage of uh, the revenue or the profits? Are they just, you know, making hay while the sun shines and then the party is over and they are by that time millionaires or billionaires? Uh, then... Maybe the composition of your revenue in terms of the geographical mix. Uh, how much are you making in India? How much are you exporting or by segments and how that has changed year on year. So I think to read an 10k in isolation, rather than that, a better, more effective way is to take three, four years of 10k and see trends changing in terms of how much is each expense as a percentage of revenue. And when there are spikes, then, are there corroborating evidences uh, to establish that yes, this is fine? Else, something goof up has happened in the whole thing. There's been someone who has fucked up somewhere. So, that's I think could be a good metric.
1: I have a great advice for the viewers. Uh, ChatGPT has made all of this very simple. So, take all of Anurag's questions, figure out a company that you wish to actually search up, take their four 10Ks, upload it to Perplexity, and start asking these questions, and it'll just search through the 10Ks for you and it will draw you graphs and it will give you like, okay, this is what happened. This is how much profit after tax is uh, converted into cash flows from operation, right? So like, go for it, guys. Go,
2: Ham. Akhil, you're making sure Anurag is not going to ask any more questions on this that he wants answered. He's not going to give us an insight into any of his questions now. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the fact that, you know, how you highlight that if you... Restrict yourself from certain jobs. So as they say, if you niche down, and we are telling that person that hey, I can't do one, two, three things, but I can do one, two, three, four, five things. That person understands that if you yourself are cordoning yourself off from those three things, you 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 understand your skill set in those five, and you're making sure that you know we don't give give you the thing that doesn't suit your skill set. I think that's a major marketing point, and I think we are often taught the other way around. He tell them all 8 or 10 so that at least somewhere something sticks.
0: No, no, uh, it's not spray and pray does not happen. Like it's not like AK47, G, one of them will get hit somewhere. That is, does not happen. And the fact that uh, I used to tell that I have presented to Mr. Bilda, Bilda ji ko maine presentation hai. It was like, oh, baapre, if it is like a 50 billion dollar uh, conglomerate uh, owner who sees your work, then to bhai, my is a small one only. So you work for me so that also can happen but yeah over a period of time i think uh, god has been very kind good people are also there in the system i found strangers who've given me work uh, my immediate first degree connections have not uh, that is also one sad part of the story uh, they are like nahin, 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 hain, let me see strangers are far more reciprocative to the idea of trying your work and then startups are far more open to trying your work than traditional uh, conglomerates, traditional companies because the mindset is very different. They want stability, continuity. Startups are more agile. They are like, okay, uh, let's try him out. Someone has tried us out, so let's try him out also.
2: I think, Anurag, our story is very similar there. The number of people who we started out with and we are like, yeah, you know, they're surely going to come on the podcast and talk to us. A lot of them haven't yet. And it's strangers who I've met all over the place. And as you were saying, like we met one week back and I bet, I mean, we've spoken for all of 15 minutes. So, you know, it's people like that who have been so open to coming on our podcast. And I also think that, as you were saying, that startups are so interesting. And that's why we want to speak to founders. Because the number of people we have had on here who have also said that, yeah, life got too comfortable. You know, life was running in a monotone. If you look at a a heart rate monitor and it's like this, that means you're dead. It has to be up and down. It has to be up and down. That's when your heart is beating. That's when you're alive. That's when you're living. So this constantly trying new things, constantly being open to change is something which is very unique to startup founders. And I think that's a beautiful thing about them. So coming to this valuation game, Anurag. What is this whole game on valuations today? You're seeing companies like Zomato, Zepto, Nika, all of these get valuations which are sky high and oftentimes the numbers don't match the valuation. How does that work? What is the whole game behind that?
0: So I think, uh, so there's a lot of VC money and in VC what they are looking at is basically the power law. So for the uninitiated, the power law, the way it works is that they also know that 10 out of 10 investment that they do, nine are going to fail but uh, the one uh, that will become a multi-bagger will give them 100x return and give them like uh, maybe 25 30 40 percent return on their entire portfolio and they're more averse to the idea of even investing in companies which are junk which they're saying it is going to be huge if it starts now then the winners take it all kind of an approach is that, that okay eventually in any market like a ride hailing market or uh, instant delivery of uh, grocery etc they are going to be some winners and then winners are going to take it all since uh, they are going to be the market dominant players maybe not now five years ten years from now uh, their habit inducing behavior is going to happen where today i even compare between an ola and an uber and an Indrive, but my kid uh, will not do that they will go to an amazon and just shop or maybe they know that Nike is good on the beauty and personal care, they are not going to even compare between two different websites. So maybe it's a long story that the people are trying to play if you look at it positively from their perspective. If you look at it from a gambling perspective, it's based on a greater full theory that as long as someone else is there who is willing to buy this at a higher valuation, they are okay We put their money. In fact, it's not their money, it's that of the LPs. So that's how I think this whole valuation game is working where uh, people are just maybe parting. Uh, And till the party goes on, you do not know. Eventually, whoever comes naked, uh, they'll see later. But right now, the tide is on, and yeah,
1: that's how it is. Anurag, what is a financial model? It's again one of these things. I want a financial model. You go to a bank to raise some debt. I want a financial model. You go to a VC to raise some money. I want a financial model. What does it mean? How does it work? What do we look at? If I'm a company, wanting to raise money what do I fix
0: Uh, so financial model is basically uh, an Excel spreadsheet that kind of represents uh, how you're going to your business is going to uh, look like in five years seven years from now so it's like if you look at a bottom-up approach to building up a business uh, valuation case so you have to look at how many customers how many trials uh, who are your customers then what are your expense line items uh, what how much you're going to pay to your ceo how many accountants you going to hire what is going to be a variable cost selling cost so before you build a big power plant uh, you build a miniature of that power plant it's a small uh, plastic power plant people can see that visualize it and if they're okay then they start constructing that large power plant so that's how i think uh, it is in terms of financial model also that uh, you build a visual representation of uh, where you want to see this business if this, these this assumptions were to hold good. And that's how life starts. And uh, then, uh, so in terms of the, that's the broad thesis, then you build up an income statement uh, in terms of the expense items, the revenue items, profit, taxes, interest, if you're going to take debt, how you're going to repay the debt. So all that you can think and visualize about that business, you put in that Excel sheet. And what emerges from there is a cash flow statement. uh, How much cash you're going to generate from the business. And that money uh, is essentially the true cash which goes into the valuation module then. From there you value the business. You also look at different methods in the financial model that okay. uh, If my company attains like uh, $5 million revenue in year 4 from now. And at that point of time, there's a peer of this uh, company which trades at four times revenue. Then this company is going to be valued at $20 million then. And then today, what is the present value? And therefore, at a pre-money value for a 20% stake, how much should I uh, look out from the market? So, those kind of mathematics also works.
1: When am I considered investable?
0: Considered investable when uh, there is a product or a service that you're offering uh, which has a compelling value proposition, or it can also be a good me too. So there are a lot of people who made money by copying OYO, gaining traction and in the hope that they will be acquired by an OYO. Very investable when there's a good product market fit or a service market fit, uh, the investors have confidence in the founders. So at a very early stage, more than the product market fit, I think the intent, the background, the qualifications of the background, um, these kind of things of the founders really matter. And you've got some basic plan that if you are going to raise, let's say, two lakh dollars from me, what are you going to do with that money? Once you're able to build that, I think you're investable. And people, once they see that there's some scale, so VCs uh, are very much particular about this scale aspect, that they're going to invest in your business only when there is some big scale which is there.
2: Anurag, you speak about the importance of qualifications. How has qualification impacted you? How has your different, like, you know, you spoke about how you working with the Birlas and giving presentations to Mr. Uh, Mr. Birla helped, but how has your, like, you know, you said you went, IIM the Bath? How has that impacted? Has that helped you in any way? What has that done?
0: Qualifications uh, essentially help you break that trust deficit. Initially, when I meet someone, I don't know who is he or who she is. Once they tell you that, okay, I've graduated from this college, been in through the rigors of this program. Uh, you feel that okay if this person has navigated these uh, turbulent waters, uh, they can do this work for me. So qualifications etc. are only that initial uh, icebreaker, bridging the trust deficit etc. Eventually it is going to be a work which has to be, because a lot of people with very high qualifications also goof up in life, And people without marquee names uh, on their CVs also do very well. But yeah if you have those qualifications it just
1: helps.
2: It gives you that foot in the door.
0: Yes.
1: So we spoke with a founder very recently and he went to IIM Ahmedabad. And before that, he was in a regular college and uh, his family was not very, his family was not very keen on his intellect. Let's say that way before he went to IIM Ahmedabad. And he's like, as soon as I got into IIM Ahmedabad, my family was like, oh, you're smart. And as soon as I got into IIM Ahmedabad, my friends were like, oh, you are also smart. He's like, I knew I was smart. But within a span of that one day to the next day, when I got that letter in my hand that you are in IIM Ahmedabad, the world got to know that I am smart. (laughs) So that was the only difference between me getting into it and me not getting into it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It is like, you know, from an... In like from a fundraising perspective, if you are an IITN and you approach a VC, the sheer fact that you're an IIT, an IIT Delhi, IIT Bombay, it also helps them to sell the story in their boardroom that we are going to put in a million dollars on an IITN. So, it works uh, to that extent, yes. Uh, and especially I've seen this IIT circle really is far more uh, profound and well-networked as compared to even IMs. So IIT Bombay uh, batch of 98 will reciprocate to an IIT Bombay batch of 2014 just because they're IIT Bombay. It will happen in IIM also, but uh, yeah, it really...
1: How do you hire Anurag? Do you look for IIMs? Do you look for IITs? Or do you look for special people?
0: So, uh, see, I think uh, the broad hypothesis there is... I am at that stage of my venture right now that I can't really afford people also with very great qualifications. But uh, so at this point of time, I hire uh, on intent, on sincerity. With basic intelligence in place, uh, I hire on sincerity. So my under principle always has been that uh, if someone is sincere and uh, wants to learn, they will learn. At least the work which needs to be done repetitively on a daily basis, they can learn that. It's not a major problem. So you hire based on character and values.
2: How do you go about identifying these values? What are some things that you look for?
0: Yeah, so you get into the background of that person, how that person has been over the years. You have to understand why that person wants to work for you. Uh, You ask them that, see, I am an individual. Why Why do you want to work for me? Why don't you go to a PwC and work? And you look at those responses... So it could be that, okay, uh, people tell very honestly, see, I can go for a PwC, but uh, see, I have to stay at home. I got to take care of my kids. And you are like, okay, that's a very uh, interesting and actually a logical question. And then you are able to solve that by offering work from home in your limited setup, a large PwC or an HP or a Deloitte cannot maybe. So uh, those could be answers. There could be very rich people who want to work. Uh, so. They want to work for self-actualization. So from that perspective, they are a good fit in your scheme of things. Okay, even if that person works for one year, okay, they are not going to really go for uh, 10% high, 20% high, can move on. Different reasons. I mean, it is a very individual story. Uh, if you really want to hire well, you have to understand the story of that person before uh, anything else. And yes, uh, you can always give case studies, questions, etc., to top it up.
1: Anurag, I'm not raising money. I'm a small business. How do you help me? What services do you provide for me?
0: So you're a small business. I will get into your business and review your operations from a finance standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, and uh, maybe look at even things like your digital marketing spends. And are you really computing the ROI on your spend? I'm going to look at the efficacy of your procurement decisions. I'm going to look at uh, the efficiency of your collection cycle. Uh, Are you going to collect, are you collecting money from your receivables as efficiently as you? should? I'm going to look at your funding cycles and see that, are you really optimizing on your funds? I'm going to look at the money that you're uh, parking in your current account for free and telling you that, okay, this is what you can do with your short term investments. I'm going to look at maybe your talent and understand that, okay, are they really worth the money that you're paying them? So maybe a different uh, third, uh, independent, third empire kind of a view on your business and just suggestive in nature, up to you whether you want to take it or leave it. Maybe setting budgets in place so that your people have targets, stretch targets so that uh, they feel uncomfortable. Unless they feel uncomfortable, they are not going to move out their comfort zones and uh, explore the market so maybe you know all those kind of things uh, capex decisions build versus rent uh, own versus rent uh, etc new franchises what are the commercial clauses what are the risks so typical cfo function chief strategy function uh, at for a small business is what we endeavor to do
2: is there any particular range of business you are currently targeting like they have sales between x and y no, no no not like
0: that not very large businesses not very small businesses somewhere in the middle is uh,
1: our sweet spot what's the difference between a cfo a founder a ceo a cmo a cto a c so many c's what's the differences
0: so uh, i think uh, it's a functions uh, that they specialize in mm, so chartered accountants will typically fan, specialize in finance and stuff, strategy, again, from a finance standpoint, marketing guys are the SELU guys. They're going to sell in the market, do branding initiatives. Technology guys will be the CTOs. They'll have the product ready or IT systems, servers, etc. And the CEO is overall the chief overall. The guy who's going to make all those individual, uh, Regiment leaders work for the larger nation. So it's like that.
1: So CEO is the one whose head is on the chopping block. When the time comes.
0: Yeah, and he draws the largest money check also for that. So it's like that. It's risk and reward is commensurate.
2: Where can people reach you? How do people get to beta fin How do people get in touch with you for your services?
0: So I have an open profile on LinkedIn. Uh, So you can just message me on LinkedIn and we can just share numbers and start the story. You can visit our website. There's a contact us section there. Or simply anurag at bitofinpartners.com. That's how it is.
2: And what is your average ticket size?
0: Average ticket size could be something in upwards of 50,000 rupees a month or a single. So it's like a one-off intervention. You wanting to understand your business. uh, So maybe 50,000 rupees for that valuation exercise a lakh rupees for that valuation exercise. You want to implement ESOPs in your business, that ESOP advisory is there. You want to have operations being reviewed once. So it can even also be an hourly exercise that I can say that, okay, this is my hourly rate. uh, 10 hours I'm going to spend on your business. The hourly rate is basically where businesses don't want to commit to a fixed fee per month. They say that uh, you be a CFO for us on call. A virtual cfo so let's say i have an investor meeting i got to present my credentials uh, you come and just pitch for us so it's a two-hour intervention we'll pay you for those two hours got it. because they don't also have clarity on whether they will need your services for around the month or not so like that
2: and you work on a monthly basis yeah
0: monthly basis per project basis very flexible see initially i am not a deloitte or a pwc i can't dictate terms in the market
2: and we'll try to help you get there as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. It'll come,
1: Manurag. It'll come sooner than you know.
2: Yes. Sure, sure, sure. We get a lot of work
0: even nowadays from abroad. And uh, I mean, one very good thing of the post-COVID world is that uh, Google Meet, uh, Zoom, uh, MS Teams has made it like, okay, you can even reach out to someone in Congo, in Africa and do work for them. And maybe they are pitching to someone in the UK and putting you... a In that call, it works.
1: So Anurag, it was lovely speaking to you. We have a closing tradition on our podcast. The last founder has left you a question and we would like you to leave a question for the next founder without knowing who it is going to be. So the question we have for you is, do you believe you need to be in Mumbai or Delhi or in a tier one city to start a business? Or do you think it would be better to do it in a tier two and tier three city?
0: So being in Calcutta now, I think Calcutta with its uh, economic condition no longer qualifies to be a tier 1 city. So I am technically in a tier 2 city. Uh, So I think a tier 2 city has its advantage that you can build from for the world for the tier 1s from tier 2. In terms of your ops, you can locate uh, or situate in a tier 2 city or a tier 3 city. And uh, in the post-COVID world, I think... uh, That limitation no longer exists. There are far more number of people than you had thought who are open to the idea of working digitally with you. A good idea could be to travel to the tier one cities as the owner founder, meet people, build that trust through a couple of meetings. And then I think they are good to go for the next two years to
2: work for them digitally. So that could be my answer to that.